it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Raj Kapalan, 
Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG Guys. Hello, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey of brands and retailers. I am your co-host, PVSB, and today I am joined by my dear friend uh, and the newest addition to the CPG Guys franchise. He's the founder of Confluencer Commerce. He is a retail luminary in his own right. Of course, I'm talking about Brian Gildenberg. Brian, how you doing? Uh, this guy sounded awesome you were talking about. I was just waiting for him to show up. I know. So. <laughs> if he does, I'll, he'll be the first who, who, one I who, go. Who, who the heck is that? But yeah, uh, I know. I'm doing great, Shree. I've got my new hockey jersey well, on. Well, I'm not Shree, but I'm Peter, but I'm that's Shree. okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing great, Peter. There we go. Hi. My name is we're, Shree. We're going to end up keeping that in. Um, we are so. totally keeping that in. You think I'm going to let that one go? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I've got my new hockey jersey. Everything's good. So, so we're recording uh, this episode uh, towards day three of the National Retail Federation Big Show NRF uh, on the west side of Manhattan. But and before we get started, could you just briefly, because I'm introduced to you as the CEO and founder of Confluencer Commerce. Can you just give our audience just a quick little tidbit on what is Confluencer Commerce? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Confluencer Commerce. Um, what I'm trying to do there is trying to help brands navigate the confluence um, or convergence, more simply, of three big, uh, three big forces, which is um, retail, um, digital, but also omni-channel physical retail. As they as that comes, um, and, and confluences or converges with media, both digital, omni-channel, and analog, and then on the content side, sort of commerce-centric content, long-term content, or sort of big big picture content assets like television ads and icons and logos and things like that. Yep. And then that sort of middleware of content, like the sort of, what I often call the current assets of content, user-generated content, social content, things like that. All three of those forces are are sort of confluencing on each other, and uh, our job is to help brands, uh, brands and retailers navigate that confluence. So you're going to be help me uh, dedupe all the photos on my iPhone. Is that what you're telling me you can do? No, that's called that, 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 that's something else. That's called Peter doesn't know how to use his iPhone. That is a good point. Um, which is a separate business. So uh, we can talk about that one some other day. So. All right. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Very helpful. Before we get to our uh, our very special guest, I want to remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com, where you can find links to our podcast on all major platforms. And if you're not already doing so, please follow us on LinkedIn. We publish new content every day of the week, even weekends. Uh, and it's really interesting stuff, and it's meant to be entertaining and educational. So please stop by LinkedIn, open up the app, go to the website in the search box, type in CPG Guys. When you get to our page, click the blue follow button. It is very simple. Uh, and of course, we are also incredibly proud to partner with NextUp, formerly known as Network of Executive Women, whose mission it is to advance all women in business and to promote the cause of gender equality. So if you go to the digital liner notes of this very podcast episode, you will find hyperlinks to our website, to our LinkedIn page, and of course, to our landing page on NextUp. We have our own landing page on NextUp. Brian, did you know that? Um, I did know that, yes. yes so, uh, so that's good. That's I, helpful. I, yes. So, so uh, please, please do it. So why don't we get to our guest? Because that's why really we're here today. Well, let's do it. Building expertise in an industry and solving problems is the playground, playground, Brian, of blue chip consultancies. Yes. Our guest today is a data-driven <laughs> strategist who anticipates consumer behavior and market trends to identify new business opportunities and operating plans in consumer and retail companies. Sounds pretty logical, right? Yes. 
Uh, sounds like sounds like she finds new playgrounds. I so. know new playgrounds. So. Uh, her strategies drive sales, three to five percentage point growth in mature businesses, and she's launched new lines of businesses that have achieved ten to thirty percent incremental revenue in year one. And four out of five dentists recommend her. Recommends for patients and use consultants. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, at the heart of her work is a relentless focus on understanding consumer behavior uh, and applying those insights to create pathways to growth through new partnerships and alliances, pricing, promotion, new products, product extensions, geographic expansion, e-commerce acceleration, personalization, loyalty programs, and Instagram strategies. Okay, not the last. <laughs> I just threw that in because you're, you're still like, you're still hoping she can help clean up your iPhone. <laughs> So please join Brian and me in welcoming to the podcast a senior partner at Kearney and a very dear friend of mine. Uh, I've known her since my Dunhumby days, Catherine Black. Catherine, how are you? Uh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I will have you know, actually, that my dad and my brother are both dentists. So I'm pretty sure <laughs> so, they would so, recommend So we, we know at least they two would recommend I hope. All you need are two more. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they can recommend We're going to change this podcast to twomoredentists.com. So. <laughs> <laughs> Before, all right, this is going to be just a laugh fest today. Yeah. Are you ready, Brian? Sorry. Catherine, before we get to our other questions, Brian and I have prepared. Would you tell us uh, a little bit about what Kearney does and a bit about your specific practice areas? Sure. So, you know, Carney, as you described, is a is a global consultancy focused on uh, strategy work, particularly in transformation and strategic operations, and certainly all the things that I do, which you described uh, a lot of them, all the commercial things, um, topics we all love around loyalty and pricing and promo, and increasingly data monetization. So, um, it's a great firm headquartered in Chicago, but operating globally. And specifically, I work in the consumer and retail practice. We have a number of industry verticals, as you'd expect. Um, consumer retail is our largest vertical. And uh, again, we're focused there on helping uh, retailer and consumer companies in all of those topic areas. Thank you for that, Catherine. For our audience, uh, go to the digital liner notes of this podcast episode. You will find a link to Catherine's LinkedIn profile and Carney's uh, LinkedIn page and their corporate page focused on uh, her particular practice area so you can uh, reach out to her or learn more about her business through those through those connections uh, so why don't we get to the questions we're really excited because I've been trying to get you on the podcast for uh, quite a long time and I'm glad we finally nailed you down here at NRF so oh my gosh awesome. I've been wanting to come on for ages but this schedule alignment there's yeah. another business idea as and soon we, as you fix your iPhone we can also do I mean there do, are scheduling apps we do manage to get together <laughs> yeah. for lunch every now and again in every Connecticut now and, again. and break bread but now we're we actually go. recording an episode so this yeah, is perfect. great just had to come to the Javits Center in New York to do it who knew, yeah. knew? <laughs> alright Catherine so let's let's obviously ground everybody in your professional background that's yeah. kind of led you where you are. I met you over a decade ago. We were both at Dunhumby USA, the joint venture. Uh, well, I was at, I think we were yeah, at the joint we venture at, between yeah. Kroger at the time, Kroger and Dunhumby. It's now yeah. just, they've gone their separate ways. Yeah. They, uh, they are living separate lives, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, and here we are, the children, wondering, where are our parents? Where are our parents? <laughs> they consciously uncoupled, actually. They consciously uncoupled. Where are you? <laughs> um, but uh, would love to understand your career progression, focusing on really what you think are the highlights that led you to being the retail and CBG area practice leader at Kearney. 
Yeah, thank you. So, uh, as you said, my, my whole background, my whole career background, it really has been focused on working with customer data um, to help companies grow and help serve customers better. So, obviously, currently doing that at Kearney, um, and we spent a lot of time doing that at Don Humby at Kroger um, together, which always has a special place in my heart. But I also worked with some retailers like Macy's and, and overseas with Tesco. Um, so, I saw work closely with both parents uh, in that, in that uh, world. And then before that, I was a banker for 12 years. And people used to always say to me, well, gosh, how do you go from banking to retail? They're super different. But the common thread is customers. Customers yeah. buy check, you know, buy groceries, and they also have checking accounts, oddly enough. And so you start tracking. Uh, yeah. You understand what they're yeah. buying. You understand what motivates them. And exactly. And plays absolutely in this first part of consumption data space. Absolutely. It absolutely does. And, and consumers have, while they may change behavior in different categories, there's a lot of consistency too. So we can use um, grocery shopping data to predict credit risk actually quite well um, as an example. So there's a lot of transferability. Well, I used to say that data... Uh, Data doesn't lie. You are who That's you right. buy. Yeah. And if you ask people who they are, they come out sounding like the Brady Bunch. But when you look at what they buy, they're a little bit more like the Simpson family. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. I'm not bringing my receipt to this That's today. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're really going to do this? So, um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want I, I to tell people that I bought Kraft Mac and Cheese and my credit card canceled yeah. at the end of it. So, we'll avoid that. So, <laughs> so, you, so you talked about this, uh, the some of the ease with which you're able to port what you knew about consumers yeah. over from banking to uh, CBG. At the heart of that, I've got to imagine is data, right? Yeah. So, so, so a couple questions on, so why and kind of how does data live at the in the center of all sort of good business decisions? And are there particular types of data that you're emphasizing with clients to employ? And I guess I have three questions. Um, and then one of the things we hear a lot from clients is about, I've got so much data, I don't know what to do with it. What do you think about the amount of data? Is there enough data? Do companies need more? Do they need less? What's enough data look like? So there's a bunch of questions embedded in there around data. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that um, the data is so critical to all decision-making. And uh, PBSB, you said it You said it best. Like, data really is the great democratizer. Actually, uh, Rodney used to say uh, data is the truth serum. And I think it really does give a voice to people who don't always have a voice in the room, you know, the, the consumer that's maybe really different than the entire management team didn't always have a voice in the room and now they do. And I think that's through data and that's why it's so critically important. And my bias is definitely towards um, consumer data and really consumer purchase data. There are lots of great types of data and marrying them together is really important and drives lots of great insight. But if I had to pick one, I would pick, uh, POS data any, any day of the week because I think it's incredibly powerful. It's very granular. It's longitudinal, and uh, it really is the heart of the matter. Factual. And it's factual. Well, yes. well, well, it echoes the idea too that like you know you are in the end what you do, not yeah. what you say you're going to do. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true. Having grown up on the shopper research side of things, my during my cancer time, it was remarkable how often people would 
in great detail after you'd watch them do a shopping trip, yeah. describe things on the shopping trip they hadn't done. Exactly. <laughs> or, or things that they would deny doing things they yeah, had done. And you see it every time. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I really, I really shopped the organic section hard. No, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't even go in the vegetable aisle. <laughs> so. It's so true. I can think of a number of studies over the years that I've done where we've married actual purchase data with uh, research. Yeah. And sometimes they're off by like 50%. It's yeah. not even close. Yeah. It's uh, like, it's like you're really not talking to the same yeah. people. So it's uh, exactly. so yeah, I always had this theory that like, like, Anyway, we'll come back to that. That's a longer story for a different day. Um, so, Peter, <laughs> Peter, back to you. So, All right. Really so, work. Catherine, I want to talk to you about digital engagement of consumers. It's a core component of how brands and retailers go to market these days. But digital is a very broad description. Would you help us break digital down into the most common components that your clients really need to focus their attentions on to succeed? Yeah, I mean you're right. We could we could spend the entire podcast talking about the elements of uh, of digital, so yeah. we won't we won't do that. Um, but I think I think if I were to hone in on the pieces that I think need the most focus from clients, I think the two in my mind, uh, or maybe the two that don't immediately come to mind for people, one is on kind of the execution elements. Um, and I'll describe that more in a minute. And the second is around their culture, which doesn't feel or sound very digital at all, but makes okay. a huge impact. And I'll tell you why I think that. Um, on the first one, the execution, there are a lot of strategies in place. And we'll see um, clients really struggle, though, to make money off of them because they're not executing them well. So I can think I can think of a number of conversations with um, CPGs who will say, gosh, I, if we could only get retailer you know, XYZ to fix their... Um, their product labeling or fix their uh, digital product management or be faster about their ability to ingest files or whatnot. Just simple, tactical execution stuff. They would spend a lot more money with them. So I think that's a big one. And then I also think... um, the other piece, it's a really big one, uh, beyond the obvious things like, uh, you know, that you're going to think of, but is the culture. And the reason I say that is um, we see it over and over again, the difference maker between companies that really make big strides in digital and analytics and any of those topics have a want to factor that other people yeah. don't seem to have. And we've done research on this that shows that they have the, a, they yeah. have a feel like they need to, yeah. but not that they really want to yeah. embed that in their very DNA. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the difference maker, I think right. across a number of topics. Um, and, and we'll see this in our research, the difference between leaders and laggards, then the deciding factor is our executive team, kind of wants to do it, has mandated, really is behind it. That's the number one thing. When that is in place, you see uh, budget flow to that. You see people align, resources aligned to it, and you see them also saying their capabilities are more advanced, but there's, there's sort of a cycle to that. So following up on that, can a company really succeed if the, the C-whatever level person doesn't really understand it, that they'll support it and they will say, we want it, do they have to have that extra step of really understanding 
or is that not necessarily a component for that success to occur? I think if they understand the importance and they sort of have what I call religion around it, yeah. it will work, even if they don't really 100%. So I don't know, know how it. to do TikTok, yeah. but as I long can, as I understand I, it's I, I can be a very religious person and understand God quite poorly, yes. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you're religious about, you know, if you're an evangelist for TikTok, even if you've never posted and you, you don't understand how it works, then yes, I think your organization, the organization of, of PBSB can, okay. can succeed. Um, absolutely. But I think that's a really critical component. Yeah. Okay. Just, and one more follow up on that, just to be, but how have you seen an organization that was able to take the senior management group and get them religion to coin a phrase? And yeah. what were some of the steps they did to do that? Like how, like it's cause you know, hoping that your senior management gets it is because we have a lot of people, mm-hmm. much as I'd like to say that everybody listens to this is CEO of something. They are, yeah. <laughs> they are CEO of their own lives, I'm sure. But, yeah. but we have a lot of people here that are trying to influence a company that is from an understanding point of view behind where they are in terms of where the world is sometimes. So yeah. what's, what are some of the, are there anything you've seen that's really worked well or? Yeah, I actually have a whole presentation on this, so you can ping me if you really want to hear the the gory details. Yes. Shame, shameless promotion. There so you go. Shameless promotion number one. Shameless promotion number two is Super. I do think having um, what I've seen work really well is to have that C-level executive marry up either with an advisor or with another company. Um, it could be um, it could be a similar company to them that they really admire in a different country um, yeah. that's done something in this space or a different field, but it's adjacent enough that it makes sense for them. But those are the two strategies that I've seen work really well, is they have someone that they trust and they respect who can help to educate them. Yeah, awesome. And then, um, and then you know, obviously during your time at, at Dunhumby and your time in data, especially in the financial services industry, where this is a much bigger concept typically, the notion of you know, customer lifetime value is a big part of how, how we think about that. And then that sort of distills down to loyalty. I'd be curious for your thoughts on two aspects of that. One, what are some of the trends that you see in loyalty? And then the second one would be, how how do you think that we as a collective consumer package goods industry? So we're gonna, you're responsible for all of it now. So <laughs> <Great>. congratulations. <laughs> Great. So, I would like a raise, You don't, you don't get a raise. <laughs> no, don't get a raise. <laughs> Chief dental officer and, <laughs> and, and, and the CEO of CPG. Because customer lifetime value is one of those concepts I think that people understand. But when you actually think about how practically most brands and most retailers do their day-to-day work, it's not a big yeah. part of how they make decisions. So what are the trends you're seeing in loyalty? And do you see brands thinking about longer-term loyalty expressed as customer lifetime value a little bit more often or a little bit more effectively? Yeah, I'll start with your second question because when I came from banking into yeah. retail, that was sort of my first question. I would like, imagine where, that's where's good. our MPV model? Where's <laughs> all this? And uh, what it took me a little time to learn is I do the think the discount rate is a million percent to the <laughs> exactly. consumer package. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I do think um, I do think retailers and CPGs are somewhat long-term oriented. I think all public companies have a short-term lens to them, but I think sure. they are somewhat long-term oriented. Definitely want to keep customers in the long-term. I think the way they measure and express that is different because it's super easy to know exactly if your customer is with you or not in a bank. You open and close checking accounts. You have a balance that goes down. It's it's very obvious. With grocery shopping, it's kind of all over the board. And I don't know if you've ever spent time sort of predicting if someone is leaving. Actually, identifying someone as a lever is even challenging because most customers shop multiple stores. You know, in, in grocery, it's you know three, four 
or more stores. And so knowing that they're gone from you is actually a bit of an art and difficult to predict. Um, and that's in increasingly getting easier over time, but it's not quite as easy as what you might see in a direct-to-consumer business who's measuring their LTV because they're hyper-focused on getting return of their customer acquisition or in, um, you know, in a bank that, again, they're hyper-focused on getting return on their acquisition cost. Just the economic dynamics and also the interplay retail makes that a little bit trickier. Um, but I think they are interested in long-term value. And some focus on LTV. Mm. I always uh, approach that with caution to be... I've gotten converted to the retail mindset on that a little bit. Well, I, well, I think it's interesting, too, because I think so many of the, the D2C brands that grow up because yeah. they're coming out of a different ecosystem and the, yeah. and, the, and the VCs that are investing in them are a little bit more comfortable yeah. with LTV, you see them behaving in ways that, because people, all these small companies, they can think so long-term, yeah. you know, they're, they're think, and it's because of the metrics to sometimes, sometimes yeah. I think, and it's because the venture capital community understands customer lifetime value a little bit better than the investors in a publicly traded company. Yeah. The challenge is always just... Um, understanding, particularly when you think about customer lifetime value, that loyalty aspect gets weaved in. Yeah. And I remember our time at Dunhumby, the, the stat's about 10 years old, and I think I've quoted on the podcast before, but even among Kroger's most loyal, yeah. 5% of shoppers, 43 cents out of every dollar they spent on CPG occurred outside of Kroger. So there is some expandable consumption there. And I've got to make, you say, well, what about in banking? Someone chooses a bank. Well, no. They have yeah. a credit card, but then they have five credit cards in their wallet, and each one of them is a banking institution. So, again, how do you think of share wallet? How do you build customer customer loyalty? It's it's about are they using my card more than yeah. using someone else? Um, I want to remind our audience that we're speaking with my dear friend Catherine Black, uh, senior partner retail and CPG focus area at Carney Consulting. Uh, Catherine, the hottest topic on this podcast yeah. is not whether Shree should build an ark in his backyard in Los Angeles because he's going to need it to get out of the flooding, uh, it is actually retail media. Yeah. Uh, retailers are accelerating development of offerings to capture what is clearly higher margins than what they are used to in selling groceries. Uh, and brands are often struggling now to create a comprehensive and productive retail media strategy. You know, originally, they had an Amazon team. And then everything else was managed by by the trade teams. And that is not really sustainable anymore. And the question is, does it get managed by uh, by by corporate marketing? Is it is it overseen by corporate? There are just so many questions on on this. So we, I want to know from you, because you're you've, you've got your ear to the ground with your CPG and retail clients. Where are you seeing the biggest challenges in this infancy stage of retail media evolving and both sides of the equation being able to take it to a meaningful win-win level? Yeah, I mean, who is a great question. And it's a little bit all over the board, really. I think what we hear, to your point, um, in CPGs is it is all over the board. We've done research on this. We've chatted with a lot of people. And I think it's managed a little bit differently in ev everywhere yeah. in terms of how it's organized, funded, where the budget sits. Above um, the line, below yeah, the line. Exactly. Is it That's measured. Is it, is it different <laughs> or is it media? Is it media? Yeah. Exactly. We argue that it's media. Yeah. And whether it's owned by marketing or it's coordinated by marketing, yeah. they can't just keep letting it live in its own little fiefdoms. The question is, yeah. how do 
And then how do the retail media networks, they all have their own methodologies. Yeah. How do you bring unity to this picture? It's just, it's kind of crazy right now. It is kind of crazy. And so I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. And honestly, it's uh, probably exacerbated by the fact that a lot of these organizations are pretty siloed. And so one of the places uh, where we're spending a lot of time and a, a place to start is figuring that out. How do you how do you break down the size? How do you bring people together so they understand it? I mean, I think particularly on the retail side, this is a totally different business. You know, you're not, it's, it's not the traditional business. And so understanding how that works, um, how it's driving the traditional business and giving an education to some folks who are really busy. I mean, look, no, no, no one's sitting around thinking, oh, geez, I wish I had something new to learn and uh, loads more stuff to do. Um, so it's a, it's a net new thing to both ecosystems. And I think particularly on the retail side, you've got huge populations that need to understand that, think differently, they're thinking about their trade funds differently, also how their partners are managing that and, the, and really needing to understand it and figure out how does this fit with all the processes that already exist in the business. And that's a huge opportunity, I think, on both sides of the equation is to think, through, geez, we, we have a business. That's where our main focus is. How does this new thing sort of fit in with that? And how do we make those things work together so we get maximum benefit? I see this at both ends of the of the strategy tactical spectrum, right? Yeah. I think there are a lot of companies that are focused on on the tactical side, upskilling their force, yeah. going out and getting talent, putting in place some processes. I still see that there's space yeah. at the top down building the what is my what does good look like and yeah. how do I build a strategy that is uh, sensical and measurable. That's where yeah. I see there being a massive amount of flux going on. Yeah, and I, I, you're spot on. And there's a huge opportunity, I think, for folks to figure out what is their differentiated proposition? Does their pricing match that? Do their capabilities match that? To your point, um, Peter, on capabilities and strategy. In a lot of cases, folks are like, hang on, there's a big pot of money out there. Let's go grab it. Let's just get something in the market. And we've seen some resellers make some big missteps, frankly, on where they go first and how they think about that. And also just some misses on, you know, in the in the haste to get into market, sort of misses on elements like, um, you know, how even what I call commercial connectivity, but how they're laid out on their site pricing, um, how they're working with their CPGs, how they're educating their internal teams, the execution and trying to figure out all the different ways they can do yeah. it on-site, off-site. Yeah. Uh, they talk about non-endemic advertising for uh, companies that aren't necessarily selling through a channel, but they just want to address that channel's audience. Just, right. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, um, so what do you think the future holds for retail media? Do you think, because there are, there are as you've articulated yeah. well, some interesting obstacles and some challenges. There's also enormous opportunity, as we've been discussing the last couple of minutes. Um, do you see the this continued sort of you know, explosion of it in terms of uh, the amount of money being spent in it? And do you see the capabilities really continue? Do you, do you see people on a glide path to getting the capabilities and the processes better? Yeah, I definitely think, uh, look, there are a lot of tailwinds to this. So I think we're in a high growth mode and that's going to continue for a period of time. And I definitely think there's a lot of headroom on capabilities. And and, and the leaders that I talk to are aware of that. They're, they're focused on it, um, but it, it takes time to get some of these things uh, sorted out. So I do think there'll be a lot of movement. Um, I think standardizing in the industry is tricky. I think that may be, may be difficult. but uh, It's tricky to rock around to rock around and standardize. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Exactly. Sorry I broke into a rap screen. You weren't here. I apologize. 
<laughs> fortunately, with fortunate, the rep's like thirty-five years old. So yeah. <laughs> well done. I a rhyme. I didn't say it had yeah. to be yeah. contextually yeah. relevant. Yeah. The, kids are, kids are, the, kids are, the kids are really hip to run the AC. <laughs> Yeah. So, Catherine's regretting. I, I'm actually completely lost. Well, thought. I think when, when, yeah. when we form our rap group called Run CPG, we're going to be doing great. Oh my gosh. I want to see you guys wearing clocks next time around your neck. Uh, and you need to be visual. Uh, no, so I think there's, there's a lot of growth headroom. Look, I don't think it's infinite though. And I do think um, a lot of retailers in particular will want to and need to enhance their capabilities. And I think they'll also need to think about the next frontier in monetization um, to, to expand beyond because I, I, I think it won't last forever. What do you, so, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I was going to say yeah. what, you know, for many retailers, this retail media to your point is yeah. kind of the frontier, but that's just the first step. Like I'm downstairs and I see Walmart yeah. doing Walmart go local. Yeah. So I want to know how are retailers going to monetize their business beyond yeah. retail media? Cause at some point there's to your point saturation, right? Yeah. So what else are they going to be monetizing? I mean, look, I think the, there's, there is a lot of opportunity and there are a lot of models already out there that are successful today. So, you know, if you look at like a Costco, which is a very different sort of model, but they make a tremendous amount of money on services, even beyond the membership fee. So you can imagine services platforms and a way to monetize customers and eyeballs in a different way than media. So maybe, maybe you could argue that's a form of media. Um, I certainly think supply chain monetization and the Walmart example is one where they're, they're monetizing it by offering a service to other. I also think there's a huge opportunity to um, to monetize supply chain data uh, to suppliers and make the whole supply chain work more efficiently in the process. So build better tech. It's a sort of co-investment model. Um, and Hence some of our old friends from Dunhubby now yeah. showing up in Bentonville helping support yeah. Walmart Luminate, right? Yeah. Well, and then, yeah, merchandising insights, definitely financial services, I think is yeah. a space. Pay, the payment space is an area where we'll see more merging and blending. Um, yeah. I think a lot of them, uh, uh, they abdicated responsibility to yeah. this. Uh, so the afterpay companies could all of a sudden take up that space. I wonder how long before they start gobbling that up and just offering those financial yeah. services. Yeah, I think there's yeah. there's, a, there's there's some legal issues around that in the U.S. as a retailer around okay. yeah. around there are, the, the those the are, there are actually some workarounds for some of that. Well, they're, now. yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they're, the industrial loan yeah. corporations in yeah. Utah, yes, yeah, so well, yeah. yeah. like, look at the biggest workaround to me in, in the e-commerce digital space is what the team at Drizzly figured out, right? Yeah, how do we get yeah. around the whole separation <laughs> yeah. of money transferring yeah. between the the three-tier system, yeah. and what they figured out is we're a marketplace, yeah. we'll connect, and the money never actually that, goes to yeah. us, yeah. it goes to the local retailer, problem solved. Yeah. I love the founder of Drizzly yeah. once described by his business to me, he's like, there's only two things in the world we never touch. Alcohol and money. money. <laughs> <laughs> and their business is about selling alcohol. <laughs> exactly. so, you know, those are the two things we want nothing to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, that actually brings up a great point because I yeah. think the other frontier, particularly for grocery and mass people who sell food, is in healthcare. And that's an incredibly regulated industry. But if you do take that sort of mindset of open systems and, yeah. you know, we don't have to touch maybe mm. uh, health information and and money, then uh, then you've got something really interesting because let's face it, what you eat has a massive uh, impact on your overall health. Well, Kroger's been spending, Colleen Kroger's been spending an enormous amount of time yeah. thinking about the role that Kroger plays in the American healthcare ecosystem as a food provider and how to do that and well, all so that. 
it's so interesting about that because I think about what CVS has done in terms of their acquisition of mm-hmm. first they merged with a pharmacy benefit management. Now they're now they're part of uh, a an insurance yeah. company. And they also just want a primary care business, not that uh, right. And yeah. so the question becomes at what point do they are they more focused on outcomes and not about the monetization? Right. Because they make a lot of money. Like part of the reason, let's be honest, that that CVS left NACDS. Yes. Was because the members of NACDS were putting pressure on the pharmacy benefit management yeah, component, and that's where they make a lot. They of were paying NACDS to lobby against the PBM. Exactly. So where CVS <laughs> makes one, that was a problem. It didn't, it didn't make sense. We love you, CVS. We're not criticizing you. We're just <laughs> yeah, stating no, so, very factual information yeah. about the industry. Yeah, I mean, look, CVS is in a position to do something super interesting in the healthcare space, given yeah. their collection of um, assets, and really interesting and disruptive in the retail space. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I made a. Back when I was doing predictions at Cantar in 2020, I predicted that by, I think it's by 2030, that over half of the largest retailers in the world, I think it's over half of the 10 largest retailers in the world, won't primarily be retailers as their line of business. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Like retail will be part of a portfolio. Next, you're going to tell me that IBM won't make computers. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but they will. Clean up your iPhone. They will. Um, so, <laughs> Back to the iPhone. <laughs> the I in IBM stands for Peter's iPhone. So, <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so drawing back on your, uh, your financial expertise a little yeah. bit here as well, we're going to bring it together. Um, so, look, the capital markets have really changed a lot in the last, last year or so. Um, venture capital is now you know, it's no longer venturing. Um, there's just not that much to put around. The IPOs have dried up. Goldman Sachs let go with 30% of their investment banking division. From your perspective, how is how is that having an impact on clients? Does that, uh, does that create opportunities for big, more established companies? Does it does it change the competitive landscape? What are some of the things that you uh, what do you think things you think you're seeing that are going to change there? And do you think something's going to come along that will change the condition for small brands versus big brands in the space, given yeah. given the radical shift in the, uh, the requirements and the expectations of the capital markets? Yeah, I mean, look, I think sadly that largely slows down innovation because I've obviously that capital is a free, massive Free money catalyst. is really good for yeah, innovation, yeah. yeah. Oddly, oddly enough. And we're um, <laughs> getting corporate swag. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. true, yes. So. Yeah. CPG guys are not unfamiliar with swag. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I hope I might get some for this. Maybe. You will, if, if, Catherine, you yeah. will get plenty <laughs> okay. of swag. Okay, amazing. Thanks for coming, Catherine. We have lovely consolation prizes for <laughs> I you. Raise, but you'll I, give me some swag. That's good. A year um, supply of CPG guys <laughs> rice erroni is on its way. Okay. <laughs> it's <a> great. <laughs> Um, but I mean, look, so I think it's going to be a slowdown in innovation, generally speaking. Um, you know, we saw all those young brands pop up, what, a decade or so ago on lower cost of marketing and uh, access to inexpensive capital. And Amazon now we're in millionaires and billionaires. Yes. Right? And now we're in an environment with more more expensive or scarce, really, scarce capital and more expensive marketing costs yeah. with all the changes that are going on. So I definitely see a slowdown there. Um, I think the opportunity is for bigger brands to innovate more, for instance, in their for you know retailers to innovate more in their private label um, areas. Yeah. And obviously we're seeing big growth there, as you would expect. And for and that's also accelerated not by just the economic conditions, yeah. but the supply chain issues, yes, right? Exactly. And like, the Nothing, yeah, really. nothing drove trial during yeah. the pandemic of private That's labor right. more than the innovative. You know, different manufacturers took different approaches, right? Yeah. Some were, I'm going to go on allocation. Yeah. 
And others said, no, I'm just going to refine my assortment and just produce fewer items. Yeah, you know what? In both cases, it has an impact on shelf presence, but they made trade-offs, right? But to your point, the economic conditions are driving trial, and all of a sudden retailers are scrambling to be able to deliver more private label offerings, and that's a real challenge to brands. It really is. So it's a a challenge. It's a growth opportunity, I think, for both. I think what will be interesting to watch is I think the – in particular, the grocery industry makes the biggest changes when they have to. So, you know, Don't when there's a catalyst, when there's a catal- a catalyzing event, uh, you know, Amazon buys Whole Foods or, uh, you know, open source coding in the analytics space or what have you. So what I don't know is what the next catalyzing event is. I don't know if you do you guys know. Do you know what the I next do, catalyzing event is? I do, but I can't tell you. Okay. Yeah, it's, on, <laughs> it's on his iPhone. He can't find it. Um, yeah. so, um, <laughs> I did, but I did put it on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what I don't know, I don't know right now whether it is another big merger or acquisition because, yeah. because the capital markets are so unusual. Like, uh, I don't know that the conditions are – are necessarily right for that. I know that there are, the retailers are very aware because of the pandemic. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's a reason that Rayleigh's bought Bosch's. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with allocation. They got tired of having 35% out of stocks on their shelves. Yeah. And they were at the low end of the ecosystem, the food chain, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. No <laughs> pun intended. Uh, and they couldn't get it. So I, do, I would not be surprised if you started to see when they can afford to finance the debt and interest rates come yeah. down. Yeah. Super like there is an like for instance, everyone anyone in the industry knows that there is a sharing relationship between these non-competing super regions. Wegmans, yeah. Meyer, Publix, H E B. Yeah. Okay. Does that become a more formal financial partnership in some form or another? And do they start gobbling up other ones because they don't want, they need to put themselves up closer to the Kroger Albertsons and Walmarts of the world than they are closer to the, you know, Gelson's of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would think consolidation is absolutely going to continue. I've never, the the only counterbalance that would be is that there has never at any point been any evidence that being a large multi-regional supermarket is better than being a regional one. Like there's just no, there's no data to support. That. Well, I think, so, well, I, I would, those, I, those I would say the data that I'm seeing is that the scarcity of inventory and being on the low end of the allocation yeah. mm-hmm. is, hasn't happened in recent history for us. True. So that is a new data point. It so is. It still is has to, I yeah. think we still have to play that out. Yeah. But yeah. there was a canary in the coal mine with, Rayleigh's buying Bosch's. The question is, is anyone else going to fall suit? Yeah, um, it'll be it'll be interesting. I think the other the other observation is, and as somebody who works with clients, I'd be curious for your, your point of view on this because I think a lot of there's been so much new stuff that's happened, partially because of COVID, partially because of new technologies and all that. And it's interesting, like you know, my history, I was a history major in college, right? So you go back these kind of odd numbered years that fall before presidential elections, like 2019, 2015, 2011, 2000, I defy anyone to remember any innovation that happened in any of those years. Yeah. They tend to be years of consolidation. Yeah. Like everybody's kind of, you know, politics end up in a weird sort of holding pattern as you try to figure out what's going on. A lot of disruption usually happens in the years previous. And you find that they're, and I think a lot of the stuff that we've seen at this event, have been about businesses trying to get their arms around yeah. everything that's happened. Where do you, how do you see companies thinking about that? Like what are the, what are some of the big things you see that sort of, we're 
call script here, but what do you see companies trying to do in terms of just getting their arms around all the changes that's happened over the last couple of years? I mean, it's a great point. You see it at NRF. Um, I was chatting with someone earlier today and saying, you know, when you look at the vendors that are here, when you walk the floor, there are not a ton of brand new ideas, really. Um, There might be new, slightly new executions, but, uh, but the retailers that I've spoken with are here to understand how do we get something that we can execute? How does it plug into our IT stack? How can we make it yeah. work with what we're trying to do? They're they're not necessarily looking for like the next huge innovation because, um, frankly, a lot of folks don't have every innovation already implemented. They're not looking for the next frontier. They're trying to um, you know get up to speed, get get implemented on things they know they should be doing. Um, so I think it's a really astute observation, and it absolutely is playing out on the floor. Last year, it was all about metaverse. I mean, like nonstop I mean, metaverse infusion. There's like one vendor here on meta metaverse, and it's all about chat GPT. Yeah, it was about chat GPT, but uh, that's kind of the buzzy thing. But I think the conversations are really being had on like, we no, really, how do I implement? Ah, uh, were you? <laughs> I posted on MySpace. MySpace, which, which, MySpace. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I think your point about the, you know not the new idea. Um, you know, bringing Brian onto the CPG guys was not a new idea. <laughs> but, but but what I can say is it was a very good idea. You executed it well. I don't know, but I think I think obviously it's to your point about mm-hmm. um, getting doing doing things uh, the right way and getting yeah. it done with excellence seems to be where they're focused more on yeah. coming up with the radically new innovative like we were talking with someone yesterday who said they were slow to think about embracing a voice strategy yeah and when they finally started asking the questions about how many people are actually using mm-hmm. voice for uh, for a meaningful search capability on on Alexa, yeah. and the answer came back, oh, like 10,000. Really? Okay, stop. <laughs> we yeah. can go stop slow on that. We, we can go slow on that. Yes, I learned, I learned that acronym from Laura yesterday, the acronym JOMO, which is the joy, joy of, mis- of missing joy out. Joy of missing out. out. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> we credited that to our friend Wayne Dwan from oh, Constellation yeah, Brands. Nice, nice. It's the joy of sitting there. It's, uh, the Germans call that schadenfreude. <laughs> no, that, that, no, that's that, that, that's taking joy in others not missing out and watching them screw no. up. That's slightly different. I did the same thing. <laughs> I am joyful watching you suffer from well, I- having done it and I didn't have to. <laughs> Sorry, that, I'm taking that. I'm taking that away. It's another payment. There you go. There you go. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, let me remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com to find our podcast. We're on 40 plus platforms. While you're there, leave us a rating and review uh, and share with us uh, about what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more about. And, of course, sign up for our forthcoming industry newsletter. My dear friend Brian here will be spearheading. Uh, and he's also launching a new podcast platform called CPG Guys Fast Forward, where he'll be focusing primarily on the tech stack and all the wonderful innovation that actually is going on there. Um and that's coming in a couple of weeks. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. For taking time out of this conference yeah, to chat with us. We hope you'll come back soon. And I would love it. Talk. This is fun. So you, we didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't too painful. No. And it, look, I got a I got a promotion in this uh, conversation. There you, uh, go. There you go. I got some free swag. I know she's getting swag. <laughs> right. There you are. You get swag. You get so to, yeah. count me in. No, yeah. thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun and uh, always a pleasure. Always yeah. great to Terrific. reconnect with you. So, Brian, uh, what were some of your summary thoughts on on what Catherine's here for us? Well, I think apart from the uh, uh, apart from our deep dive into the dental industry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
keep observations into your iPhone usage. Uh, there are a few. There are a few big ones. I, I love the idea of data as the true serum, and um, and and how that data how that data can and should be fueling decisions, and in particular, uh, the behavior or the purchase data. So, if you're really going to use data as a true serum. Um, really figuring out how to use the data that's around people <clears throat> around what people do not what they say they're going to do that's really where the truth that's really where the truth is the truth is <clears throat> i love the idea that the the companies that are most innovative from the digital point of view <clears throat> don't know more about digital than other companies yeah. is that their two big areas of expertise are around execution and culture and we came back to that execution idea at the end <clears throat> we talked about the big trend in the world being you know retailers not necessarily not knowing, you know, not knowing what to do or trying to tackle the metaverse, but just simply trying to reliably execute the solutions that they already have and being able to take that and be able to scale that. I thought the execution thing was a really important one. And, um, you know, I think the, the last thing was a, there was a really interesting question around in here around companies that feel like they have to change versus companies that want to change and how yep. digital leaders are often the companies that want to change. And I think you said something later in a different context about how grocers only change when they have to. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it was, was it Kierkegaard or Dick Van Patten who said, if you label me, you negate me. Oh, that's Wayne's world. Never mind. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, it was um, it was either of them. It was a um, I believe uh, it was the old CEO of uh, one of the old CEOs of Intel uh, who, who basically said, "Because so change when you want to, not when you have to. Yeah. It costs less, and you have more time." And I, my sense is, is that the companies that want to be leaders then want to change, change when they want to, not when they have to, give themselves more time and more bandwidth, and, and actually can do it at a lower cost. So I love that sort of implicit linkage between the wanting to be digital leaders and the wanting to change yeah. and that sort of that sort of evolutionary curve and then obviously all the conversation we had about the evolution of retail media was fascinating so. yeah, thank you guys well Brian thank you again for co-hosting this with me so fun to spend time at NRF walking the show floor seeing it's like reunion week again every time we go but it's hard for us to go more than three steps well, before we, dre- we, we dress very subtly in, in cognito we're though. sitting here wearing our <laughs> CPG guys hockey jerseys yeah we're, yes. we're about as subtle as a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow thanks for joining me no, on this journey Peter thanks as always so. uh, and to our audience we greatly appreciate you listening to this episode and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the CPG guys podcast goodbye Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of 
reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.